introducing to you Dan Ackerman. Um, Dan helped uh, a couple of years ago to start the Alliance of Reformed Churches and has played a pivotal role in, in the spreading of that and also helping churches transition. Um, he, he serves in different leadership capacities and offering insights and um, um, helps to um, leaders who are getting started in the church ministry. So um, without further ado, let's welcome Dan Ackerman. Thank you. God is good. And God is good all the time. So I have to tell you, um, I am just getting my head around a lot of things. I drove down this morning from Michigan. It was a great drive. Uh, needed the space. Had a great day yesterday with my family. I have four biological children in between three and four. We picked up a Nigerian daughter whose parents live in Nigeria in Lagos, and she got engaged now to a guy who's from Nigeria who lives in Massachusetts. So we had to have the U.S. side over here for the engagement thing yesterday. And it all fell on this weekend after I made a commitment to come down here because that's how it works, right? So my kid's in from Wisconsin. My daughter's in from Massachusetts. My daughters who live in Grand Rapids are around. We, we had a tornado, tornado that went right over the church where it was supposed to happen. And all the power went out, so we were praying for power. It was just a great weekend. So anyway, I'm feeling really good just to be here. The power's on. Things aren't on the road. Trees aren't across. It's good. So God is good, and I'm grateful to be here. Um, and as they said, I helped start the Alliance for the last two years of my life. I finished that uh, time with them in June, and I'm now uh, launching my own coaching and uh, coaching piece around lead-up coaching, and I'm also helping to pastor churches through the season that you just went through. So on September 10, uh, you can start praying for me and the church that I'm going to help pastor for the next eight months. Their pastor retired. Sound familiar? Been there for quite a while. They've been without a pastor for a little while, and now they want to head into the search more intentionally, probably as an Alliance church. And so I'll be there about 50% time preaching, coaching, leading, uh, and also doing my other leading stuff. So it's good. Hey, it's great to be with you. I want to, uh, just as I intro my sermon this morning, I mentioned I have these, these children, and they do kind of different things. They're kind of independent, which is good. One of them moved to Costa Rica, and she lived in Costa Rica with her husband. It was great. They helped um, Nicaraguan refugees find their place in Costa Rica. Then around the end of 2019, she came home, said she was going to be home for Christmas and January of 2020, and they were going to consider going back, kind of look at what they had to do. And while they were doing the considering, all of a sudden, this thing called COVID broke out. So they were in my house. They were locked down. Uh, it was March by then. Somewhere in June, I had a conversation with her. It was clear they weren't going back at that point. It just wasn't going to work. And uh, I said to her, what do you miss the most about being in Costa Rica? And I thought maybe she'd tell me the food, maybe the mountains, maybe the rainforest. She said to me, Dad, I miss the fact that life is organized around conversations. 
Like here, I go to appointments. I get in my car. I go places. I'm either on time or I'm late. She said, I used to come out of my front gate, close my front gate, walk past the bakery, say hi to the bakery lady. She said hi to me. I'd say hi to somebody else on my way to the train. On the train, I'd have a conversation while I was going places. In the afternoon, I'd be walking home along that same street. And the abuelas, the grandmas would be out. And I'd have conversations. It was a conversational place. And we built ourselves around conversations. Here I build myself around, I don't know, getting places and being on time. And she said, I just miss it. And I thought about that as I was putting this sermon together and that conversation, because she's still my most conversational child and most relational. And she just loves that relational conversation. That's the space in which Jesus does what he's doing. He is walking and talking in conversational space. So as we read the gospel this morning, I want you to think about that, that Jesus isn't, on the, isn't in a car, he's not on the road to like this place going with his windows shut and the air conditioning on, or if your air conditioning's broke with the windows down and the wind blowing through you. He is conversationally walking along and building relationships. So let's go to that place this morning and let's, uh, let's talk together about God's word. And as we go there, just let me pray for us. Father God, these are your words. This is your time with our hearts. It belongs to you. So Lord, keep me from getting in the way. Keep our other stuff from getting in the way. And Lord, make your spirit free to be upon us. And Lord, let it work on us and let us be receptive to that. Soften our hearts so that we might feel your touch. And if it needs to be a bigger poke than just a touch, may we feel that poke. May it come to us. So God, make this your time. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage is in Mark 10, verse 32 to 52. If you've got a Bible with you, I really invite you to open it. I'm going to preach kind of textually. I'm not going to bounce around this morning. Uh, and so I'm going to walk through it, and I invite you to walk through it with me. If you've got to get up and get one, it's great with me. I take no offense. I've had children. They walk out on a lot of stuff I've said. So, <laughs> verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. There's that on-the-way conversational thing. With Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, meaning the conversation, 
they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind, said, Rabbi, blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. God's word for God's people. So let's start this morning just thinking about where is Jesus going, right? Where is Jesus going? Jesus spent much of his time, um, just go ahead and give me the next map. Jesus spent most of his time up in the Sea of Galilee area. That's the northern edge. And he spent a lot of his ministry time there. That's where he called James and John, Peter, first disciples. It's further away from Jerusalem. It's a place where there's less political pressure for him. It's a great place to minister. It's the hillsides where you find the feeding of the 5,000. It's the sea where you find him walking on the water, calming the seas. It's that place. But now, as we read in the beginning, they're on their way up to Jerusalem. Now, when you look at where they were, there are two ways to get there. The blue arrows are through the highlands, and that area takes you through Samaria or Samaria, and that area would have been not the most traveled way for Jews because they were bigoted against the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not truly Jews to them. Now, Jesus had been through there. He had ministered to the Samaritan woman. That wasn't a problem for him. But now he's on his way, and he's going to Jerusalem. When he says to Jerusalem, recognize it's not that he's going to a locale. It's not like, oh, I'm going to that city, like I'm going to Lowell this morning when I left my house. He's going to Jerusalem means I'm going to the festival of the Passover that's about to happen. So we're going to Jerusalem. So he takes the red arrow side of things goes down this valley, and from the Sea of Galilee to Jericho is a drop because Jericho is like a 1,000 feet below sea level. So it's a city sitting 1,100 feet below sea level. So when they go to Jericho and then up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's about 2,400 feet, so it's a 3,700-foot climb in 17 miles. So that's the context, that's the journey. And Jesus chooses that valley along the Jordan River, knowing that that's where the Jewish people who are on their way for the festival are going to, it's not just going to be him and 12 people or 20 people. It's going to be him, his 12 people, 20 people, and all kinds of folks going along. So that's where they're going. And it's this conversational we're on the journey. Families are going to the festival. They're dragging their little kids along. They're trying to keep track of their little kids. Their little kids are getting lost, that kind of stuff. 
All right? And so Jesus, at some point, it says, you know, he called his closest followers together and said, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going up to Jerusalem. We're going to that place. And, uh, and show me the picture real quick. I have two pictures. You can see here, this is one is a, is a three-dimensional model of how Jericho's down in, and you go up to Jerusalem, and that Jordan River comes from the Sea of Galilee, and they show you how it goes down. And then one more, and that's what it would look like in real-time place today. So moving on. That's just to give you a picture of what could be. So this is where we find ourselves on this, on this path. And he tells them what's going to happen when they get there. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem and he's building this community and he's still teaching and he's imparting to them preview of coming attractions. And out of that, we get two conversations. So let's go to the first conversation. The first conversation, so out of this moment that Jesus tells them what's going to happen to him, the first conversation is James and John. Now, these are Jesus' closest followers. They're disciples from the beginning. They were in that Sea of Galilee place. They gave up their father's business. When you go back to early Mark passages, it's Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John. They're the first guys out to say, I'm following you, Jesus. Wherever you're going for the next two and a half years, I'm in, I'm going. I'm leaving the family business to do it. So they're close followers. And he tells them, we're going to suffer and die. And instead of wondering where they are or wondering what that means, James and John decide to ask a question. And the question is, this is the question, right? It's a setup question. The first part is, hey, Jesus, do for us whatever we ask, right? Teacher, rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, if you've been a parent or are a parent, you know that moment when your child comes up to you and says, you know, I've stayed out to midnight before, right? Because you know what's coming next. They want to stay out till midnight again. Or, you know, mom and dad, when I did this, right? And you know, now the context may be totally different. They stayed out to midnight because your family had a family gathering and yeah, you were all their parent. Now they want to stay out with their friends and they don't want you anywhere near it. They're setting you up, and you feel that setup going on with these guys. And they say, he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a key question. What do you want me to do for you? And these two guys who've just been told what Jesus is about to go through, that this whole trip to Jerusalem is not about a festival, it's about the death, it's suffering death, resurrection of Christ, ask this let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on the left in glory. Wow. Now, again, culturally, our seating arrangements at things are different, right? So yesterday, we kind of let people choose where they wanted to sit. The only, two, the only people on the stage were my uh, Nigerian daughter, Joni, and her fiancé, Tim. Everybody else got to self-choose. That's not how it went in their culture. In their culture, everybody's around the table, and the people on the left and the right were the most important. In fact, Jesus teaches in another place, if you're going to a banquet, think about where you're going to sit and sit a little further away from the host, because if the host chooses to bring you towards them, it honors you. If you sit too close and they have to move you back, 
it doesn't honor you, right? He teaches them about humility using the banquet image. So these guys are there for that teaching, and they're saying, when you come into glory, we just heard your, your life is about to end, so when you get to glory, make sure one of us is on the right and left. You know what they're saying is? The question really is this. Make sure, would you make sure everybody knows how great we are? How well we followed you and how carefully. Let everyone know that we're the greatest. That's what that question is all about. And I can just imagine Jesus. That's why every time I read this, it's like, I, I don't know that I can give Jesus the motives that I want to have, but I'm like, are you kidding me? We've just had this conversation that I'm going up to Jerusalem to die and to suffer and die and be treated badly, and you're worried about who's the greatest? you got to be kidding me. He said, And Jesus, in his pastoral way, I think, says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you do what I'm about to do? And they're like, oh, yeah, we got that. We can go up to Jerusalem. We know, what, we know it's going to be kind of antagonistic. We can do that. And then Jesus tells them, no, no, no. You will find out what it's like, right? And these two guys do find out. I mean, James, as far as we know, is beheaded as part of the Jerusalem church. And John ends his life isolated on, the, on an island all by himself, writing us the book of Revelation. Right? He's with God and no one else for the last chapter of his life. So Jesus knows, and they're like, we can. And then he says, yep, you will, but it's not for me to grant. It's not for Jesus. It's for God the Father. It's for the Godhead together. I don't know. But he says, it's not on my plate. And so he ends that thing, and then all of a sudden we get into the reaction to that question of let everyone know that I'm the greatest. Guess what happens? It fractures the community. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You can just imagine, like, who said you guys were the greatest? Peter's like, I was the first one out of the boat. I was the first guy to follow. Why are you the greatest? And somebody else is like, man, I came out of the tax collector. How are you the greatest? You can just see that fracturing going on, right? And what does Jesus do? Again, he takes these closest disciples, conversation along the way, and he says, look, recognize how the Gentiles do it, how the non-believers do it. They're all about the power, and they're all about lording it over, but we're not about that. We're about servanthood. We're about being a servant to all. And whoever wants to be a first, he says, not only is a servant, but a slave to all. So he takes that conversation and puts it back together again. But even as the conversation ends, you have to have this feeling like there was just a little bit, if not a fair amount of fracture in those disciples. Still mumbling, grumbling, what are James and, and John thinking about and who made them the greatest? And that's where the scene closes. That's the first conversation. And then Mark takes us into a second conversation. They come to Jericho and they're leaving Jericho in two sentences. We don't know which they're doing, but it's really not a big deal. But what's changed is it's not just the disciples now. There's a whole crowd, right? So in Jericho, as they're about to head up that mountain road, the crowds are starting to come together. They're all going to the festival. And 
they're going and they're leaving the city and all of a sudden this voice comes from the edges of the crowd, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's not a whisper. It's a all-out yell. And it's out there because this is a beggar. This is a guy who's blind. As a blind man, there were no ways for him to work. He has a cloak. He's probably sitting on the side of a road. People at Jericho probably know him. Others don't know him. Um, And somehow the, the key in 47 is when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now think about this. This guy's blind. He doesn't move around much. He's been in this area all of his life, probably can't get places unless somebody takes him there. And somehow in his blindness, he sees Jesus for who Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus, son of David. He attributes royalty and power to Jesus. Other people are like, wow, what could, could, you know, What good could come out of Nazareth and Jesus of Nazareth? He puts two pieces together and says, no, this Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus, the son of David, the one who's going to royal royal throne history, and he's yelling it for all he's worth. And for his trouble, he gets rebuked. Rebuked. That is a strong word. That word is the same word that Jesus uses when he calms the sea. He rebuked the winds and the waves, and they calmed down. It's that word. And they rebuke him. You can just see it. It's like, shut up. You are making a fuss and you uh, go away. Leave us alone. You can just hear it being hurled at him. And he doesn't care. He's going all in on this one. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The, the more they rebuke him, the louder he yells. And then it says, Jesus stopped. Interesting reality, right? They wanted him to stop, and the person who actually stops is Jesus. And he stops along the way for a conversation because it's a different culture. If he was in the car, think about the motorcade, the security guys, the bulletproof uh, the bulletproof windows. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that kind of motorcade. We're talking about the walking along the way conversation. And suddenly the people are like, oh, man, Hey, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Like, be happy. It's happening. And so he jumps up, throwing his cloak aside, probably his one possession, just leaves it behind. He jumps to his feet and came to Jesus. That's a new disciple, right? All the other disciples left their fishing boats and came to follow Jesus, their possession, their family businesses that we talked about in the first conversation. Now we got a new disciple who is leaving his one procession, he's out of here. He's going to go see Jesus. And then the key piece, verse 51. Same question as verse 36, right? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Exactly the same question that he asked when James and John started to set him up. It's the same question. He says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do? And this is how Mark links the two conversations for us. And Bartimaeus says, man, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Rabbi, I want to be able to see. I want to see. 
So here's the disciples who've been with Jesus the whole time asking for greatness. I want to be at the, at the left and right hand. I want to be known as the greatest disciple ever for all eternity and glory. And Bartimaeus says, I just want wholeness. I want wholeness. I want to see. Now think about it. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come on earth, you can say it, as it is in right. So who in these two conversations is saying, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? The disciples who've been with him the whole time or this Bartimaeus who says, I just want wholeness. You know the answer. It wasn't those guys. It was this guy. Right? And immediately Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Go, he says. Jesus says, go. Go about your life. Faith has healed you. And immediately the guy can see. And he follows Jesus along the road. A disciple is born out of wholeness. These two stories are not together by accident. When God inspires Mark to write these stories back to back, he wants us to recognize the back-to-backness of these conversations. And he wants us to think about our conversation. Because here's the reality. Jesus did go up to Jerusalem. Jesus did suffer. Jesus did die on the cross as a ransom for many. And three days later, Jesus was risen from the grave. And later, Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God where he sits and rules today and sends his Holy Spirit to ask us that very question for ourselves today. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks you that question every day. And here's what this passage teaches us. There's really only two answers. That, I mean, there might be a third, like, but there's really only two answers to that question when Jesus comes to you. One is, you either answer saying, Jesus, I want greatness, or you ask Jesus, I want wholeness. Whether you're talking about the situation at work where things are you know, struggling and falling apart and you want to be known as the one who fixes it, just make me great enough to fix that. Or Jesus, help me bring wholeness. Or maybe it's a family relationship where the family relationship is is broken and, and we want to pray and say, God, if they just see how my life is together, greatness. And Jesus says, can you pray for wholeness? Even if it means you have to go and say, maybe I haven't always acted the way I should. Greatness, wholeness. Gentiles lording it over each other, servanthood, being a slave to all. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you in relationship to your next pastor coming? You want him to know how great you are? You want him to see you as greatness? You want him to see you as a community that wants to bring wholeness? What do you want in your life? You want people to see you're great? Do you want people to see you as a person who helps bring wholeness through the power of Jesus Christ? 
what do you want Jesus to do? It's not a question that lays out in history somewhere on the Jericho Road. It's a question that comes to us every single day in a variety of situations, marital situations, sibling situations, work situations, school situations, church situations. What do you want me to do for you? Greatness, wholeness. How will you answer? Let's pray. God, we confess that while we see those disciples in this picture and there are moments when, when we want to say, man, why didn't they get it? They should have been sharper than that. They had all this stuff and they were right with you. We would have gotten it. And then we go, no, 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 let's stop. That in itself is a prayer for greatness. So God, just uh, help us to be people who desire wholeness and desire to bring your healing and to see you heal others and us in the midst of our lives. And may we be the people who, like Bartimaeus, want to be a servant and a slave to all, who just want to be whole in the world in which they live. God, may we answer that question of what do you want me to do for you? May we answer it well with pictures of wholeness. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.